Hello and welcome to Ernie Ball's Striking a Chord podcast. I'm Evan Ball. Today, we welcome Jesse Keeler from Death From Above 1979 to the show. Jesse and I discuss many things, such as the making of their new album, Is For Lovers. We talk about the band's early days in Toronto. Jesse lets us in on some of his bass sound secrets, which are of course critical in a two-member band. We discuss the future of music creation and the Freeze Me video. If you haven't seen it, I put a link to it in the show notes. I'd actually recommend watching it right now since we lead with it. It'll be three and a half minutes of your life well spent. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Jesse Keeler. Jesse Keeler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Long time coming. Yes, this is great. I'm looking forward to it. And I think I want to start out talking about the Freeze Me video because... (laughs) It might be the greatest video ever. <laughs> How did the concept for that video come about? Um, literally, the guy who directed it, he's from, uh, he's from Vancouver. And he sent in that treatment just out of nowhere. He had the whole idea in his head already. And then the record label were like, uh, well, you guys got to be in the video. And I thought, well, what is terrible bodybuilders? <laughs> um, so then I had the idea that why don't we be the, uh, why don't we just have cameos as the, uh, butlers at this weird muscle party and they were into it. I learned that, uh, a plate full of 50 corn dogs is much heavier than you'd imagine. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. And that, but it was really a fun day and a very weird day too. Cause that was filmed in this strange widow's house. Like her, it was way out of town outside of LA, like a couple hours out. And it was like this giant house that her husband had designed for the two of them, but then he passed away before it was done. So the video is in the parts that are done, but the rest of the house was just like untaped drywall. Oh, how weird. And and yeah, and the design of it, like she hadn't changed anything. So it was exactly how he had left it. And so all that front, like there was no staging to do, like that's what was in the house. Yeah, quite a pad. And and for our, our listeners who haven't seen it, you're probably getting a, an idea of what the video is, but it's basically like a bunch of giant bodybuilders in a super posh mansion, just being fabulous, living a life of luxury. Yeah. Is there like a cultish thing going on with their white robes or is that just sort of part of being highbrow? I think the director was trying to get something like that going. Like there's that scene where they're all standing around in a circle in the robes and then they all eat an ice cube at the same time. So good. Yeah. I mean, you have this, there's this overarching, not to dwell on this for too long. (laughs) There's this overarching theme of like this city in the distance that's going to hell. And these guys are at a safe distance, sort of living high on the hog. But within the concept, there's just so many great shots (laughs) <laughs> do you have any favorites i mean the guitar solo is amazing well I, i'm pretty sure it was uh seven eyes idea to put the dog in it that was just the director's dog that was there I, sp- I feel like i spent a lot of time with that dog when they were shooting other things just hanging out with it because it was uh it was barking at people when it wasn't attended to but yeah that whole scene on the balcony looking out was so cool because they're really that i mean that's it really is just on location in that crazy house. I'm glad you brought up that dog because I, for some reason, love that scene when um, the older buff dude is holding the dog and sort of evaluating, uh, admiring the dude doing sit-ups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that is definitely, so definitely one of the most interesting shots. Yeah, there seems to be something inherently funny about lifting weights to music. <laughs> Who got to cast the characters? Because someone did a phenomenal job. Those bodybuilders were the nicest people ever. I wish that we had uh, been involved with that, but it was so so interesting because when they were all there, you you learned that that world is actually, it's like, it's just like the music scene in a a sense, like all these bodybuilders hadn't met before that, but then they all knew each other and they have this whole, whole world that the one guy the guy who's pretending to do the guitar solo he had a competition the next day so he was in like the the most extra rented version and just like the way they were using real weights uh for a lot of the time in the 
in the exercise because they they didn't want to use the fake ones. Of course not. They were like, it didn't feel it didn't feel right. They couldn't fake it. Right. But yeah, this director dude just that was all in his head. He if I if I could find the original treatment, it would read pretty much exactly as the video turned out. Yeah. I was just wondering how this how you can convey the the concept, uh, do it justice on a piece of paper and say, Hey, how do you what do you think of doing this? It was admittedly probably a paragraph and a half long, but he had it, it was all there. Yeah, I'm a I'm a fanboy, obviously, of that video. So well done. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Yeah. All right. Um, before we get to the new album, maybe we can go back and grab some band history. Sure. I was uh, I was watching your documentary, Life After Death from Above, 1979. So in it, you're talking about the early days, and you guys had a, a gig planned in the U.S. for September 12th, 2001, and then it gets canceled because of 9-11. So I know the band starts around this time, but... It starts on... On that day. Okay. So the gig you're talking about is from a previous band that you and Sebastian had together? Yeah. So we didn't live in the worst neighborhood, but it wasn't the type of neighborhood where you leave all your gear in the van overnight when you have to leave in the morning, you know? And so we we had just put all the gear in the living room ready to take out the door the next day. And we'd been up until, I don't know, six o'clock in the morning or something. And I fell asleep on the couch sitting up with the tv on when i woke up i uh that's when we i saw the first building on fire and then i went up to went to wake seb up i'm like hey you gotta see this man and then he was like ah i go back downstairs and then i watched the other one happen and i go up to him i'm like dude it happened again you gotta come down here and so all of us who were had been intending to go to Detroit and play with the blood brothers that night or that next day. Was this femme fatale? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You were the, you were the lead singer in this band, right? I am. I was the everything. Okay. I, I played all the instruments, you know, that was like something that I, I w- wanted to do. I fantasize about making one more record and I guess I, I probably should. I have a record's worth of ideas, but sort of over the time I started just putting any any riffs that I would have used for that I just started to put into death from above and said and like the the most obvious example is uh, our song called government trash like that song sounds amazing on guitar and what I don't have to really cycle through the notes on the bass I can actually hit the chord yeah anyway yeah so that that day I just uh you know I I'm a musician I make music with my hands and the stress of that moment and it was weird too because uh there was fighter jets flying around our city because they were i don't know why why anyone would want to crash into the cn tower but i guess that was a worry you know it's just like a weird vibe every no one was on the street no one Uh, understood what was really happening so it was just paranoia everywhere yeah and so i just i was just looking at all the amps and i didn't even own a base like someone had left this uh squire jazz bass in our house that was didn't have a case or anything it was just leaning up against a corner in the in the living room and i just thought oh you know maybe i'll just plug in a bunch of amps that are here and wait how am i going to split this bass signal oh i got my dad's old uh ibanez chorus pedal why don't i try that oh wow never actually used the stereo out on this chorus pedal before whoa it works oh it says just a really fast pan between two amps wow, the bass sounds a lot clearer now when the signal is split like this and the mud is gone and I've got all this definition and I was playing through solid state amps that had all this attack and I'm like, I'm going to make up some songs. And so I wrote three of the songs that are on uh, our first EP, Heads Up, that day. Wow. Like, uh, like I keep saying this, but at some point, my like my lady says, at some point you got to stop saying this, but like, Drums are my real instrument. I started playing drums when I was three years old in 1979. Just, I've played drums in bands. I've been asked to play drums in bands. Uh, I've done it a lot, but uh, I actually played drums on one of the songs in this record, but like... Uh, so in Femme Fatale, though, were you already a... Ba- were you playing guitar and singing? Like if you'd play live, didn't you have a full band? Yeah, well, what it was actually other people that gave me the idea because they were just records. Like I made three records like that where I just, I played and wrote everything. And most of those records are like first or second take. Cause I just sort of had it all in my head. And, uh, 
in terms of playing the bass, I wouldn't say I was a bass player. I was just like a bass operator. You know what I mean? Like, hey, what would I do on the guitar But if I only had one or two fingers and couldn't play chords and wanted to pull the pull the feeling of the the chords, uh, what was happening with the guitars around. So bass comes to the fore on 9-11, right? As far as it being your main instrument? Well, like when we made that first recording, everything, I, there's so much that has to do with our band starting in that time, like Femme Fatale had, I had a record out on a label from Berlin. I had another one out from a label in Vancouver. And we were, you know, getting asked to play shows. And basically my friends heard these records and were like, we should, you should make a band and we'll play your parts. And I'm like, all right, that sounds cool. You know, I'd, being the singer in front of people was strange, but, uh, admittedly i don't think i'm built to do that but uh you know we, we were doing that stuff and we had shows booked and because there were so many people in that band and you know back then i was still sneaking across the border to play in america there was we had some shows booked and not everyone in the band could go so seb and i who had started death from above sort of on the side we're like well we could go it's just the two of us we can go in a car and borrow cabs and stuff when we ah. get there Okay. Yeah, I mean, we played our first show ever in in Long Island, and our second show was in Boston. I'm wondering about that that cross border that stood out. We had uh, Stephen Babcock of Pup on the podcast, so also from Toronto. But he was saying we were talking about how it can be tricky for Canadian bands to break through in the U.S. with visas and just the cost of navigating the border. Was that an issue then, or was it a, a pre nine eleven thing, or were you actually sneaking across? I'm not going to uh, get into a ton of detail about it because okay. you know, now I'm a, I'm a, I do things very legally, but, uh, mm -hmm. but, but before music, I didn't have, uh, I didn't have any, uh, what you'd call a legal occupation. Um, mm -hmm. I basically went from uh, crime to music and, uh, <laughs> it worked out, <laughs> but, um, yeah, we would just, uh, there was ways there were ways. There were ways you could get across, get across the border. And of course, uh, you know, a lot of people I knew you'd get snagged and then you'd get banned for five or 10 years if they felt like it. Okay. That's happened to lots of people that I knew from that time. Oh, wow. Okay. So let's see. So back to death from above. So that starts, is, is the initial plan to, to be two people or when does that decision come about to have it just two members? Well, I, I just recorded uh, the bass and the drums for those first three songs because I didn't want to forget them. And it was also something to keep me busy that day. But in my head, I thought Seb and I could play guitar over this and we'll find people to play these easy bass and drum parts. But when Seb heard it, he immediately thought, I want to sing over this. And so my, I, our initial thought was that we could find someone to play drums and I'd just play the bass. And then one day... It was the middle of the day. Sebastian just said to me, "He's like, you know, I think I could, uh, I think I could sing and play drums at the same time." And we went down in the basement, and just, I mean, literally the very first time we played "Dead Womb" was that was it. Like it happened, and I remember we finished the song, and we're just like kind of standing there looking at each other. And I said out loud, "I think people are going to like this." <laughs> That's like, awesome. That, it it actually worked, and. Uh, yeah, we just sort of kept going from there. And that was the end of uh, trying to <laughs> bring anyone else on. Yeah. Were you roommates at the time? Yeah, I, uh, uh, I had I had a... <laughs> God, how do I say... I don't know what the statute of limitations on anything is, but like <laughs> I, I had a house and uh, Sebastian and, this, and one other guy that he'd known um, needed a place to live. And I had three bedrooms. So I'm like, hey, come on down. And, uh, and that, yeah, so this, it all happened while we were living together, which of course made, uh, writing real easy. Like we just, you could just walk downstairs and play. Yeah. That's great. That's gotta be a, a nice benefit to, to whenever the creativity sparks, you're there to make it happen and, and run with it. Oh yeah. And something it's, it's something that really, uh, troubles me for the future. I mean, at that time, like I was 25 years old and I could 
afford to find a detached house in the city of Toronto. Now I don't think you could buy a detached garage for that much money. And I wonder about like, I think about the future me somewhere who is going to want to start a band and be loud. And there's just, they're going to have to be rich. I mean, the, uh, even like a little tiny rehearsal space costs thousands of dollars a month. Yeah. You don't think about that just to set the table to allow creativity to come forth. I mean, I know that that financial situation isn't the same everywhere, but at least uh, for Toronto, I think that all the, all the rock bands are either going to be the children of rich kids or uh, from the suburbs. Cause yeah. that's the only place you could, you know, being loud is, is a, it's kind of a bit of a privilege, right? Like to, to have, especially when you're a kid to a have parents that are like, Oh yeah, you need drums. You want, you want a 24 inch ride and then be able to play them and not have neighbors complain. I mean, that's not, that's not condo life. You know what this reminds me of is I just saw, I don't know if you've seen the new Billie Eilish documentary that came out. No, but I, I, I could quiz my daughters and I'm sure they'd tell me. Yeah. Detail. Well, it, it's really amazing and, and fortunate that it's, it's this brother and sister who live together. And, it, and it's, again, this dynamic of having the perfect setting to be creative. I mean, they, have, they needed each other, right? To, to play yeah. off each other. And they, they both have so much natural talent, but it's, they're also so lucky that they're brother and sister and they were in the same house. I mean, they recorded this enormous album, you know, on their MacBook at home. Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy, but a different situation, it wouldn't have happened, you know? It's very inspiring, really, because that is the computer in the sense it has realized all our our my my uh 44 year old ass's old diy dreams i mean even when you think of, i think back about it now it's like all the records that we would make or that other i mean i i didn't press any vinyl but when other people would do it for me i mean they had to have they didn't have to have a lot of money but it still cost a fair bit of money to to release music you know um or you needed to know somebody that had a a four track tape machine or something. Yeah. The and equipment that, to do it. Now there's no cost. No. There's no cost. Like you could, I, I started making electronic music on my mom's old laptop, you know, like, uh, and I could do it anywhere and with headphones on and didn't need any space. It changed, changes everything. So, yeah, no, I, I'm the same age as you. And I so appreciate what I have on my MacBook right now. Just, you know, starting on, on garage band and then going to logic because yeah, I had a, eight track reel to reel it was a seven track one of them was broken and then <laughs> and then didn't have an adat but there was that awkward stage before going to computers i don't know if you remember roland had these it was the vs 1680 it was like the first standalone hard drive unit that's with what a little I, screen on it that's what i rec- thing was like five thousand dollars well i i didn't have that one i had like a, a smaller was it a hard drive recorder i think i had one that had some it had some sort of Maybe it did have a hard drive in it, but I had some sort of digital recorder, and that's what I uh, that's what I recorded those first three tracks on. Okay, I did everything on it, and it was so small, so I could uh, I would go downstairs, track all the drums with a single stereo mic that I had, and then I would take it upstairs and put a mic in front of a guitar amp I had in my bedroom, and that's how I would write stuff often. Yeah, and now GarageBand comes free with your computer. Well, like my my dream was always to have a situation like the band did like for Big Pink, you know, just to have a house in the country where you could and you had a s- simple studio set up and so now I have Big Gray and I live on uh, I live on my farm that's about 100 miles away from Toronto. Oh wow, okay. Between me and my my partner, I guess there's three studios in this house. Fantastic. Yeah, and it's it's great, but uh, if I had had this when I was a child, I don't think I ever would have left. Right. I wouldn't have gone anywhere. Yeah. Well, before we move forward, so in the olden days, what were your hopes and dreams for the band when you first formed? Was it were you pretty driven to make it happen? Well, I I guess I should give you some background on me. Like my dad was, uh, he was an unbelievable guitar player, and he sort of shaped the sound of guitar players in Toronto after him 
He was in the first Canadian band to ever play on uh, television in America. Uh, the singer in his band went on to be the singer in a band called Blood, Sweat, and Tears that I'm sure you've heard huh. of. Apparently, my dad had a was in a band with Rick James for a while, but they didn't record. Um, he like he dropped out of high school in the ninth grade to tour. Like that's he was crazy. Wow. He was in the initial version of Steppenwolf, which he <laughs> quit because uh, he didn't do drugs. The first house I ever lived in was uh, the Alice Cooper's bass player's house. My mom's from India, and the Indian rock community in Toronto was very small in the 70s, so uh, Alice Cooper's a bass player, also an Indian guy. Wow, and, this is uh, crazy. Yeah, we all lived in the house. Like That's where I started playing drums on the drums that they had there. Ah. I wish I had a beautiful seven-piece uh, Ludwig kit, and it was all pearl. Anyway, um, so like I'd grown up around music. My mom had a publishing company at some point. Uh, I think my parents had made some money selling some country songs that they had like they they were it was never lucrative for anybody really like around us but it was things that everybody still did. My grandmother was a piano player for the ballet in Toronto and wrote all this music for children's ballet and stuff and but her obsession was really playing like uh, Art Tatum like incredible crazy jazz stuff. So like music was always around me. Uh, but anything that I had done before, and I mean, I, I probably put out like 10 records of stuff before Death From Above started. And like, I had a weird memory the other day realizing that the first time I ever played a show was in 1992. I think it was 17. Was strange to think about, but uh, yeah, like, so I'd been making music and it was just something that I always did. And I, I'm not going to say I didn't think about it. Like it was the only thing that I really loved to do, but I never imagined that this is what I would get to do. But then when Seb and I made this first, uh, the first Death From Above record, I gave it to my dad. I remember he called me a couple of days later. And the first thing he said on the phone was, well, you really caused trouble for yourself. I'm like, what? Hmm. What are you talking about? He's like, you made something people are going to want to hear. You're going to have to do something with this. Because before that, he'd always like about the femme fatale stuff. He would be like, well, you have too many parts in these songs. He's like, you know, you can pay a play a part again. You can go like A, B, <laughs> B, C. It doesn't have to right. be A, B, C, D done in 30 seconds. So he had a friend who had as a teenager been like Johnny Cash's tour manager and stuff like that. I didn't know. I didn't, We didn't know anything. Uh, like about the music business. And so my dad said, well, why don't you talk to the, this guy, Larry? So then I sent the record to Larry. He sent me a, a couple other P he's like, well, you're going to need a lawyer and all this stuff. And, and for me at the time I was living on about five bucks a day. And I just thought, how the hell, well, a lawyer, I can't afford to spend anything. We went for a meeting in the first meeting we went to, we were <laughs> fucking wore suits. Seb wore the jacket he wore. It was prom like we didn't know what to do i was like is this a meeting like do we have to is this a tie or no tie suit situation i think that's the last time i wore a suit outside of a wedding or a funeral um but like we didn't know anything we just knew that we should probably try to do something with this music i didn't know what that something was i, I love that your dad presented as a, as a dilemma since it was good it's so true yeah. i mean if if it sucks then you don't really have to be in that in that dilemma well, his his thing for me that he had told me uh, when I was very young was that he's like, just you don't ever want the music business to ruin making music for you, because if that happens, then you've lost everything. And I have repeated that advice to friends over the years, many times who were who I could see were getting really frustrated with the business aspect and how things, you know, weren't working out. And but it's like what's not working out, you know, like you should be doing this because it's what you want to do. You shouldn't be doing it. You shouldn't be doing it to be f famous. I mean, you should be making art because you have to. But did you ever feel pressure? Like this has to make it so it pays the bills and I don't have to get another job? To be honest, uh, no, I, I've never really felt like that. There's been times when I was in incredible amounts of physical pain and I'm still going up to play. And you know, if you had asked me 30 seconds before I'm going to walk on the stage, hey, Jesse, do you feel like playing a show right now? Uh, I would probably say, no, I feel like being in traction. But then the moment I get up there, I wouldn't feel any pain. 
and yeah. I, it would be gone and for hours afterwards and then i would just do it again and just keep going like there was no no stopping yeah i i've never thought about it that way but like partially because of what i'm alluding what i alluded to earlier <laughs> sure. i i will i will always eat and i will always i will never be uh i'll never be homeless as long as i <laughs> as long as i still have my faculties but. all right <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> I won't dig any deeper. Uh, let's talk about the new album. So it's titled Is for Lovers. Yes, sir. And for our listeners, uh, we're recording this on March 25th. So the album comes out tomorrow, right? It'll be out at midnight in this digital world. Yeah. Uh, I think. I mean, I assume. But yeah, it's uh, it's surreal, man. All right. So So for our listeners, the album is out for you listening in the future but uh me right here i've not heard it oh my goodness uh, but we'll soon yes looking forward to it. well you do have one single out right one plus one that's on yep. the album right yeah yep that is track two well now i'm disappointed that you haven't been sent the whole thing i wish uh i would if i had you known know. <laughs> if I had you know known. what i think it looks like ali sent me a little secret link in the uh there we go yeah this zoom so yeah perfect timing ali that's you can you can just listen to it in real time while we're talking <laughs> i look forward to it uh is that the album cover the one that you have on the single uh it's, it's basically like a uh, 70s couple in bed that's just the uh the single but the the actual album cover is also that couple it's uh sebastian's um i guess it's great aunt and uncle who uh who both passed away uh, you know, over the course of this last while, but the aunt passed away while we were making the record. And he went over to Chicago with his mom to sort of go settle her affairs. And he found all these photographs oh. and was very inspired by them. I remember he sent them to me and I responded to the one. I'm like, that's the album cover. There it is right there. That's it. It's done. <laughs> I don't know if that was his intention uh, when he sent it to me, but it was like a no brainer for me. Okay. So for this album, is there anything particularly different as far as process or maybe your head spaces or anything that stands out? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, first off in the, in the past, certainly the last two records. Yeah. I get, you know, even from the beginning, I, there would be a, there would have been a demo version of a song prior to making a record. Like we would have both written a bunch of stuff, gone through it, decided what songs would end up being an album then go in and record those songs and change them as we went in the recording process, mm -hmm. refining it. With this one, you know, we had wanted to make a record by ourselves for quite a while, but I think despite the fact that we both knew how to do it, it was just very hard to take that responsibility on personally when, you know, you're asking the, re the record label is going to give you money. And so then you have to give them something <laughs> worth that money. And I think we maybe we just didn't want to screw it up or we were intimidated by it. But this time we just said, no, like we can, we're, we're really going to try. And so we just set up entirely in one room. We got together for five weeks and wrote something basically every day. And a lot of the stuff that's on the record in the end is, is that like initial take, like you actually hear the moment after we've figured the part out, you know, like, uh, hmm. because we would start, we would have the, the computer recording the entire time we were playing around. And then, you know, that you could hear, if you listen to those raw recordings, you can hear the moment when we're like, Oh, that's, let's keep doing that. That's the part there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so the record sounds like at the time, it just, it, when it's just two people making a record completely by themselves, you're also doing a lot, making a lot of decisions based on expediency. It's like, there's a lot to do and there's just two of us. So let's not make it overly complicated for us. You know, it's not like yeah. there's a bunch of, there's not a, the interns intern there waiting to do drum edits. Like we should probably get it right. You know what I mean? Like we should probably just do it right. Cause whatever right is in our own heads. Sorry. Was this on your farm? Were you doing this? No, this, uh, we did it. Sebastian was still living in LA. Uh, and so I just, and it was winter here. So it was a good opportunity to get away from the snow. And, uh, yeah, like the last, the last three records, this one included, uh, 
we we made down there and i would just fly down there for for the time whether or not i came down with songs or not was different but yeah with this one really you know we we just made it up in the moment and the recordings all the music at least i mean sebastian always records the vocals afterwards but the the music was just such an immediate thing and i didn't uh, appreciate how that was going to affect the overall feel of the record but you know like we've been saying it a lot but i i've never listened to one of our albums as much as i've listened to this one like i really enjoy it and i think part of what makes it so listenable uh, i mean at least for us is that it's not it's not overdone you know like the the bread was removed from the oven before it burnt um that's something i've wondered i wanted to ask you do you ever maybe not just this album but do you ever have to restrain yourself from adding layers to music in the studio in light of being a two-piece and needing to perform it live well i remember when i was a kid and i discovered led zeppelin i remember listening to those records being so affected by them had to learn how to play every riff was so curious and then later in life seeing video footage of them playing and realizing oh yeah, there's only one guitar, so it's only going to be one of those parts that I like at any given moment. And I think that that really affected me uh, going forward, where I, I was always afraid of doing things on a record that I couldn't then potentially do on a stage because I didn't want to leave anyone with that feeling. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, I'm, I think we're just like doing this for ourselves, and it's a great coincidence that other people like it. But, you know, I, I need to be happy with it. Um, so I, that, that ethic has restrained every record. Like if we, whatever we're going to do, whatever we're going to do in the recording, I'm the guy that's always saying, well, how are we going to do this live? Cause if we don't have a way to do this live, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. So apart from like, apart from double tracking, which, you know, just sounds great. And I think also, uh, helps avoid some phasing issues when you've got hard panned of the two things apart from that no uh i think that's enough layers and i mean to be technical uh, years ago i figured out that if i augmented the sub on the record like of the, of my bass with a synthesizer sub or just the clean di uh, which is how i do it live for the most part then that would free up a lot of headroom on the distorted channels Mm. um so i mean that's that's kind of it well i want to ask you about that i think we're, we're kind of getting to this next question because are there are there any keys to getting a good distortion sound on bass because you know it can be farty if you will oh like, yeah it, you and you need you need it big and mean but you still need clarity because your riffs are like the center of the song well eh. I hope there's a I hope there's some pedal builders out there that listen to me say this. The key is headroom, right? Like the key is always headroom. And all this nine volt distortion, I mean you've got plus and minus nine is is pretty small. Like my main amp, although the schematic says twenty it's running on twenty-four volts, the preamp's running on twenty-four. It's at, if you put a meter on it, it's actually thirty-six. Like that makes a huge difference because then you can get really distorted before it starts self-compressing, right? Like the more the more juice. That's why we have all these pedals that now have like a whatever. I'm doing air quotes. The power pump thing, you know, where you it runs on nine volts, but then it a cap fills up and then it drains slow at twenty four. You know, okay, um, because they're trying to create that amp headroom uh, in in the small setting and like. For years, people would be asking me like, oh, what distortion pedals are you using? I tell them I don't use any. And at the time I was saying that and doing that really because it's just the stuff that I had and I didn't have money to experiment with uh, different distortion pedals. But then as, as I did, as I could afford to, or admittedly as like people would just send me stuff for free to try, uh, I started to notice very quickly that I would get to that point of saturation that I wanted, but then I would also lose all my dynamics. And as loud as I am, my my rig doesn't feed back unless I'm basically touching the speakers. Uh, like it won't just feed back for nothing yeah. because it's got all that headroom. So it's not folding. It's not folding back. 
That, I think that's the key. And then the other thing is to really, uh, is to EQ on the front end, um, whether it's with, I mean, I guess with your bass, you can really only mess with the volume and the tone. I've always had the tone wide open because I need that brightness so that there's attack, so that mm -hmm. the single notes actually cut through. But it's certainly ever since I started using the Dan Armstrong bass, which is on its own pretty muddy and farty. I mean, Ken Armstrong made made the humbuckers that I'm using uh, in his dad's basses, which I I think they're they sound a lot better than the originals. But there's there's actually like too much output from them, in a sense. Like the they drive too hard. So the the very first thing in my chain is a uh, is an EQ pedal where I have the gain at uh, as far down as it will go. And then I EQ out the, uh, like kind of 30 Hertz stuff so that yeah. I, can, I can get that another way. Um, and generally uh, like for this stage, I'll have a DI right at the very beginning. And then, uh, they just use that 50 Hertz down frequency of the clean. And then for the, for the amps, they don't even get that. They don't get hit with, uh, this sub that's then gonna you know eat up headroom did you used to play out of a guitar amp instead of a bass amp you said you didn't have pedals for the distortion yeah no i mean i the the amps on everything were so i got this acoustic 450b head which i'm pretty sure i traded some lousy drum machine for in like 90 something and then I had this uh, PVF800B, which, I mean, people send me pictures of them all the time, say, hey, I found one. Do you want it? Well, literally that happened yesterday even. Um, and those two amps are the sound of the band. I mean, essentially the, the core of the bass sound is a bass, a chorus pedal, a stereo chorus pedal, and those two heads. And they both just had like a built-in distortion. The sound of the two of them together is good. The sound of either one by itself has, is lacking something. Like the P the PV head was more was too muddy. The acoustic head didn't really get the low end right. But having the two of them and then having that chorus pedal panning between them incredibly fast, it uh, somewhere in the phasing or whatnot, it just smoothed out beautifully. Yeah. Okay. All right. I have uh, a few short answer questions. Well, sure. they can be as long as you want. Which bands or artists would you say most directly influenced Death From Above, 1979? Well, it's certainly in the beginning. The early Deep Purple stuff was a big influence. Hmm. And also on the design. Like the punk scene that we came out of, the idea of putting your face on a record was like a real no-no. Like that's <laughs> just like, that's some weird rock star shit. Who is, who's going to do that? But we had been listening to In Rock by deep purple a lot and if for people who don't know what that cover looks like it's the members of the band on mount rushmore and we thought that was just, <laughs> like calling it in rock is just hilarious like right. and and to, you know but we just thought wouldn't it be funny if we if i made a, a, a i edited our heads in some way and then we put it on the cover of the record and we called the record heads up and it was like a joke and now you know you still have elephant trunks on your faces though right yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that I makes had, it a I little to, less taboo in the punk world, I think. I had to do something, but yeah, like the we used to even in the beginning we would even cover "Into the Fire" by uh, Deep Purple sometimes if we if someone wanted us to keep playing and we didn't have any more songs. Okay, all that all that unison guitar, bass, organ, riff stuff. I mean, that's sort of the blueprint for my whole thought process, like. If you're if you're listening to a band like uh, everyone's playing in unison, if all the if all the note creating instruments are playing the same note, could I do that by myself? You know, yeah. um, that's essentially what the whole concept is. I mean, even from down to the amps, it's like one amp is more of a bass amp, one amp is more of a guitar amp, and there's your bass and your guitar, um, and then with effects and things well now it's like there's a b3 running through a marshall as well like i can i can get to that point with volume and whatnot and then you also you know i mean it's not going to sound as full but i could definitely be as loud so that was a huge influence um yeah. seb always tells me you know to try to avoid the blues which is 
like my default. I always want to play the blues. It's when I when alone. That's how you know. The, oh, interesting. It's how I learned how to play. But he when he tells me to avoid it, it makes me like makes me think about my. I think it makes me think about my note choices a little bit differently. Is that why he does it to push you out of certain parameters? I guess. I think it's just to, to try to keep us from exploring any tropes too much. Yeah, you yeah. know, sometimes like uh, uh, guitar players listening to this will probably know what I'm talking about. Like, you ever notice sometimes in a in a someone's solo where it starts to kind of sound Egyptian? You know, do you know what I'm talking <laughs> about? It's sort yeah. of like there's like this there's that like sort of snake charming scale that yeah. You can, I think I know what you mean. And it feels good to play. Like I would do it totally. Like you get into that sort of zone. I know my dad's thing was he would find himself falling into pulling riffs out of like old songs. Like it would be like the coasters or something. And suddenly he'd be incorporating those melodies into, into his bits. But like, yeah, it's just trying to, trying to avoid. I could see that. Like, uh, maybe ZZ Top's already played all these like bluesy riffs or something. Or, yeah, yeah I mean, it, you, you might lose that originality or it could sound like it's down the middle or something. And it, it or, or maybe, maybe it's just as a way to keep me from phoning it in ever, you know? Like sure. I'm, all, I'm always on. I can't just default into, uh, well, this note should be next. No, no, no. What, let's make a decision. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm now just I'm talking to you. You can hear my internal dilemma, my internal <laughs> right. conversation. What yeah. are you going to do now, Jesse? Yeah, where are you going to go from here? You really got your fingers in the knot there, buddy. That's great. I know the feeling. But like uh, in terms of other big influences, uh, and I, I hope that they would be flattered, but there was a, a punk band or a hardcore band, I guess you would call them, called the VSS. And they were from Colorado. And they were... Their guitar, bass, or a synthesizer, the guy played one or the other, occasionally tried to play both at the same time, uh, drums and a singer, but it was like, their records are amazing. There's an album called Nervous Circuits that I, the first time I heard it, uh, um, I'm, I'm friends with the singer, Sonny, he's an, an incredible artist. Um, but I just remember hearing that and just thinking, you know, my thoughts about what a recording needed to be or what instrumentation needed to be certainly like in those, in the songs on their records, when it would just be guitar synth and drums. I'm like, I don't miss the bass. I don't notice that he's not playing the bass. Yeah. And I realize there's all kinds of other examples of that in music. But for me, that was, that was the one. Yeah. Huh, I'll check that out. And it's, it sounded like that, that nervous circuits record, if it had come out in, 1989 they would have been the biggest band in the world um mm. but yeah it's it's really uh that that was a big influence on on me and how i would think about putting stuff together and if there was another one i mean i, I don't want to sound cheesy but like <laughs> the late era beatles are a big influence on sebastian and i mm-hmm. i'm like I still remember his dad, Seb's dad coming over to our house, looking at all our gear. And he's like, he got more gear than the Beatles did to make Abbey road. Where's my Abbey road. <laughs> um, but like the way those records play through where it's sort of, there's always something happening. Uh, you know, the whole, the B side of, of Abbey road, where it's just a whole bunch of little songs strung together. I mean, even just the way things come in and out and, or how the bass pulls the, the guitar around. I mean, all that stuff is a, a huge influence on us. Kind of, it's like whether you like it or not, if you've listened to those records enough, it's in there. And I, I'll just add in the, uh, the other big influence uh, on my note choices, sometimes to uh, Seb's frustration because he finds it hard to think of melodies to sing over. But, uh, hmm. you know, like 70s, 70s Bowie stuff was uh, still a massive influence on my life. I like I, I've had to buy multiple copies of Diamond Dogs because I run that n- needle too hard for too long and start to sound like garbage. Uh, but all those chords and and on this new record, I mean, I I think that I I probably got that on display the heaviest it's ever been. Yeah. All right. Do you have any strange fan encounters that come to mind? 
Oh my God, dude. Yeah. You can always pass too. No, I mean, there's a, there's a lot. Uh, there's been a lot over the years. Thankfully, I mean, all positive, but uh, I think the probably still what will always win the crown for the weirdest one was, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's emotional to think about, but this, uh, we had played in DC uh, at the 930 club, I think. And then afterwards, uh, Seb found this girl sprinkling something on the bumper of our bus. And, you know, he confronted her and she was crying and it was, it was some of her brother's ashes because he oh was my gosh. he was like a giant fan. And her idea was that she wanted to put some of his ashes on our bus so he could go on tour with us. And uh, Seb just said, well, why don't you give us the ashes? We could bury them at Jesse's farm or something. So she gave him this like, you know, uh, pill container full of this, this guy's ashes and we were just sitting on the bus like kind of silent looking at each other holding this thing just thinking this is so crazy you know he was a giant fan and uh seb hands me the canister and i shake it i'm like this sounds really good we should use it on the record then he'll be on the record um and we ended up yeah we credited him on the last album as the shaker oh wow you know it We've, I think we've met his whole family since they they've come to they've come to shows, met them all. Um, like that's a you could never I could never have dreamed that up. You know, right? Hey, do you want to be in a band? Yeah, you know, someday, yeah, someday you're going to be that important to somebody. That's wow, that's heavy. It's, an, it's it's a it's an honor, but it's also like it's such a weird thing to process. Like how I can't imagine how important your music is. Yeah. You know, I did an interview yesterday. Uh, Seb was at a truck stop and couldn't do it with me. So I did it by myself. And the, the guy kept using the term legendary. And I, I, I stopped him every time. I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? Legendary, legendary. That's such a, that's a weird thing. This is just like something I do, something I've been doing for half my life. You know, it's flattering, yeah. but it's yeah. like, how do you, I don't know how to process that. I like, I, I really, I don't believe it. I'm sure there's lots of other people that don't believe it too. That'll hear this, but it's just like a strange, what a strange ride. Thing yeah. To be told, you know, that's amazing. Well, speaking of, I saw you guys are, are playing at the life is beautiful festival in Las Vegas. Yeah. Lots of giant acts and any bands in particular you look forward to seeing in that show. You know, I'd have to look at it again because there's a part of my mind that, uh, is afraid to get too excited about it and then have it not happen. Hmm having it been so long uh, since playing. I mean, this is the longest I've gone without playing in some form or another in front of people since, since 92. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, even when the show offer came, I was sort of like, ah, how excited do I get about this? You know, it's like, right. I've matched five numbers on the lottery ticket. Uh, will I, <laughs> should I be excited? Should I, should I even, should I let someone else tell me whether or not I got the last one? Like I, I want to I think the odds are pretty good at this point. I mean, September, uh, you know, going through the summer. I mean, the way things are moving in the U S right now, I mean, knock on wood, Yeah, no, but I know it's hard after, after facing disappointment after disappointment, you know, not being I able hope to book so. anything. Well, my, like the, I think the, the main thing that keeps me from getting too excited about is I, I wonder about uh, border stuff. You know, because even if it, like if this is just some brass tacks music, music uh, stuff, but like if we have to go down there and there's a two week quarantine and then a two week quarantine, we get back. Am I paying my crew for a month for mm. a single show? Right. Like if I if they work for me and then they can't work again for two weeks on either side of it, like how's that going to work? I feel like testing and vaccines will be so widespread at that point where you could you'd be able to document your safety. Yeah, I know. Uh, I saw, I read that in Israel, uh, they have some sort of vaccine passport, but it works two ways. Either you can, or it's more of like an immunity thing. So if you, if you have the T cells that shows that you've had, had it and beat it, mm -hmm. you get the stamp, or if you get the vaccine, you get the stamp. Yeah. Um, and that, that makes me, uh, hopeful. Cause that's a, that's a kind of like, that's a fairly realistic thing to do. 
Is, uh, is Sebastian in the U.S.? Does he live in L.A.? So Seb, uh, Seb left L.A. I mean, I, I lived down there for a while. I left in 2011, and he moved there in 2011. I left because I was going to have my second daughter, and I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want her to be away from my family. Mm-hmm. So I came back. He went down there. He moved back here last year. And interestingly, just after he had a child. So maybe there's something in us that as Canadians, we're like, well, have kids now. Got to gotta make them Canadian as well. Although I guess technically his daughter is American. Uh, yeah, yeah. Certainly makes making records a lot easier, you know, to have him be hours away rather than hours flying away. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And especially after after completing this record entirely by ourselves. Now we know that we can do that again and we're happy with the results. And it seems like other people are as well, because it really could have gone either way. Like maybe at the end we would have had something that sucked. Like the possibility is always there, Yeah, but it worked out. And so, you know, Seb is, uh, he's fixing up this house. That's about it's, I mean, my house is 197 years old. I think his is about the same. I think he's he's uh, setting up a studio in his house, basically almost the same as what we had in LA. So then I can just drive over there rather than having to fly so and cool. rent a place. And yeah, we can just make music whenever. Wait, how old are these houses? My house is 197 years old. I also have a cemetery. The man who built my house is built, buried out there along with five other people. The deed for my house is from the King of England. It's older than Canada. Yeah, this side of the Atlantic, 200 years. That's going back there. Well, I'm I'm very I'm very very remote. Like the garbage yeah. man in the wintertime, the garbage truck driver calls the house and asks if I have any garbage because if I don't, mm. he's not going to drive up here. Right. <laughs> My road sometimes looks like it's been raining uh, bowling balls and ten pin bowling balls, not five. Dang. So really, uh, yeah, you can go about two miles an hour in the spring on it, but. Uh, I like it. That sounds cool. Um, any predictions of what music looks like, say, 10 years from now? Could be musical trends or music business model trends. Well, I think that music is always reactive. Um, the, an easy thing to track is like the development of jazz out of swing big band music. I mean, that the people who created jazz were big band swing players that didn't like how structured swing became like the Benny Goodman stuff mm-hmm. wasn't inspiring. And then you have, you know, like I have a Sarah Vaughn record of a bunch of Count Basie's band recorded at four o'clock in the morning and they'd already, they'd already played that day, but they needed to do more. You know what I mean? Like, I think then when jazz gets too structured, then you get free jazz coming out of that. And, uh, or it's or very obvious when you look at metal, how like things start off more, rock and then it gets heavier and faster and heavier and then noisier and then you have like offshoots of just straight up noise you know yeah Um, yeah and i think it's always people reacting to being put in a creative box and i noticed like uh there's this uh rapper that i love called west side gun from buffalo dude puts out like four records a year it's crazy i can't imagine being that productive but he like there's all kinds of tracks on his records that don't have any drums I'm like this. I'm listening to a rap album that I love that has half the songs don't have drums on them. Like there might be some drum apparent in the sample, but that's like the whatever loops. But that's it. There's no, there's no drums, and it's so counter to what what has been happening in that music for you know decades. Yeah. But I think you know it's those reactions are going to always keep happening, and then you know maybe it will get to a point where it's you know, that idea gets more and more extreme and then it'll come back around. I think music is always reactive. And I try to, I try to predict what is going to come next based on noticing when an idea gets saturated, you know, like uh, in electronic music, dubstep came out of nowhere. It became just absolutely unavoidable. And now it's very easily avoided right because i i think it just be because of how quickly things move move around now digitally the 
uh, amount of time it takes before things get to that saturation point is way, way faster. So I don't know, but what the thing that does really excite me is I, I think about how my kids are nine and soon to be 14, and they've spent their entire lives in a time where they never had to worry about getting a eight track <laughs> that worked, sure. you know? Yeah. Uh, and just thinking about how incredible the computer I'm talking to you is now in 10 years, they're going to be insane. And I can't even imagine what level of uh, stuff will be made by the kids who've grown up with it. Yeah. You know, like their, their idea about what's possible is completely different. Like the things that impress you and I, they're, they've never known a day without that possibility. So their heads are going to be looking way beyond just what can be done to what 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 pushes this stuff to the limit? Yeah, I hope. Anyway, this is me. I'm I'm kind of a hippie and an optimist about all that stuff. Like, yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, you made a great point pointing out all those how things are are reactions to what came before and and sort of pushing the envelope. But like we've been saying with the democratization of of music, both with the tools to make it and the tools to listen to it and to find your people and find your your pocket. There's so much happening at once it seems like never before. So many scenes simultaneously happening. And so it's, it's multiplying and it's also happening faster, like you said. Oh, I have one really great anecdote to, to that point about how things are changing. I went to see uh, King Gizzard and the Wizard Lizard. Uh, I think that was the last rock show I went to before everything went away. But I went to see them and the, the promoter is a friend of mine. And we were standing on the on the side and I'm looking out at the crowd and it was the most eclectic crowd I've ever seen in my life. Like there was everything there from someone that almost looked like a crust punk to a hippie to people who looked like they were at a rap show to like every manner of sort of style was there. And I I asked the promoter, I'm like, is this what all their shows are like? And he just said, it's an internet show. The Spotify show. And I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, in comparison to 20 years ago, you're going to go to the hardcore show. Everyone kind of looks the same. You know, everyone's sort of dressed the same and influenced mm-hmm. like you, you know, like punks look like punks and the, you go to the rap show and everyone kind of looks like they listen to rap music. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the metal show is really obvious. Like are all the t-shirts, some sort of weird demon blood lettering. Okay. Everyone's going to the, you know, yeah, like yeah. There's, yeah. there's all this stuff you can wear and the, the music scene you were into started to define way more than what was in your, on your turntable, but it was also like, it became how you dressed and whatnot. And then you look out and it's like, no, all these people found this music without having to join a club. Mm -hmm. And now they're all here enjoying it together. And the only thing that unifies them as a group is that they all love this music. And that's the only thing that needs to happen. I think that's amazing because I, if I hadn't seen it and then had it explained to me, I wouldn't, would never have thought of that as one of the things that could happen, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. That's a great anecdote. This is what happens when you live out in the woods, making right. music all day. And uh, I am also an, a farm farmer. Like I am a act. This is an active working farm. So this is my downtime. We don't get to plant here until like middle of May. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is the perfect time for me to have deep thoughts about music. Yes, this is great. Well, before I let you go, let's uh, let's touch on strings real quick. What bass strings are you playing? Well, I play Ernie Ball regular slinkies. Regular slinkies. The yellow pack, yes. Okay. I have been playing those strings on pretty much every guitar I've ever had, certainly on bass since day one. I've tried other gauges. I've had people say, oh, you could play the, you could play the pink package ones and it would be easier on your hands but i have giant hands and Mm -hmm. uh i play with my action way higher than people expect just because it's easier for it's like not it's not trouble for me and i kind of like making things physically hard for myself but they're perfect man yeah i realize this sounds like a like a paid advertisement but uh i tricked you into it i really i really love these strings and i'll be honest like i tried the coated ones on the bass i love them on guitar but on the on the bass for me it's just like the consistency of those strings on the road, I change them or I, I don't change them anymore. My tech mm-hmm. changes them every other day. And uh, from moments that I had that I really, where I was very happy with the instrument. Sometimes I'll take those strings off and save them. Oh, really? 
Yeah, so I have, I mean, the string, I'm looking at my 74 Gibson grabber that I made the pink record with is sitting a couple feet away from me, and it's still got the strings on from the last time it was played on a stage in 2005. And when I pulled it out of the case after not touching it for so long that it started to smell, it was still in tune. Like it was still in tune after being in my basement for five years. Oh, I love it. Jesse, thanks for so much for being on the podcast. Can't wait to uh, listen to the album. Thank you for asking me questions about the music. Because, you know, lead up to a record, you do a lot of interviews about, uh, about everything else. But here <laughs> I am. I'm, you know, I'm a nerd. I want to nerd out on frequencies. <laughs> thanks for tuning in to Striking a Chord and Ernie Ball Podcast. Hope you're all enjoying Is for Lovers. Great album. Don't forget to follow Death From Above to stay in tune with new videos, live shows, etc. If you'd like to contact us, please email strikingaccord at ernieball.com. I was thinking that I would do this during the interview, but I, I always have a box of strings right, like, right next to me. Love it. What do you have in there? That's one of the, uh, is that coded? Oh, you got the coded, coded ones. Nice. Guitar strings. That, I like them. On, yeah. I like them on, uh, on my guitars a lot. And I actually put them on, uh, because they're the only strings that I have a lot of. They're also on some acoustic guitars that I have, um, which is kind of good. Cause when the kids hit them, it's not, as bright but <laughs> i pretty much learned how to play an open a because that way if i just if the guitar is in an open tuning if they decide to just smash into them or whatever it at least sounds nice <laughs> yeah so you know going, I mean? that's that's a good idea yeah for sure it's a nice pleasant ringing not a clanging sound <laughs>